Hello, and welcome back to the Herodotus Podcast. This is episode 11, Crossing the Hallas, Book 1, Chapters 71 to 78. Last time on the podcast, Herodotus presented us with a mini-history of Sparta, demonstrating how the city managed to conquer its rivals in order to become the foremost military power in 6th century Greece. And because of their power, King Croesus chose the Spartans as his allies in his upcoming war against the Persians. In this episode, we'll see the Lydian king make his opening moves against his enemies to the east, and how well, or as it happens, how badly, that goes for him. Of course, Herodotus just wouldn't be Herodotus if his narrative wasn't complemented by explanatory stories and digressions. So get ready for some detours, some zigs, some zags. But I assure you, the historian will lead us back to the main storyline in the end. Today's text begins with Croesus ready to march off to do battle with the Persians. And Herodotus starts us off with an observation that should come as no surprise to the attentive among you. Croesus misunderstood the oracle that led him down the path to war. The punchline, so to speak, doesn't arrive for a while yet. So let's just note that, yet again, Croesus can't interpret an oracle to save his life. Literally. And also, yet again, a wise man shows up to give the king some really good advice, which he completely disregards. This wise man was a Lydian by the name of Sandanus, who was already known for his wisdom, but, Herodotus pointedly observes, was soon to win great fame because of the advice he now gave. Sandanus came to Croesus and said, My king, you prepare to make war on a people who wear leather trousers, whose entire wardrobe is, in fact, leather, and who don't eat what they want, but only what they have, since they inhabit an inhospitable land. What's more, they drink no wine, but only water, and they have no figs or anything else good to eat. And so, if you conquer them, what can you take from them? these people who have nothing. If, however, you are conquered, consider how many good things you stand to lose. For once the Persians get a taste of our luxuries, nothing will be able to drag them away from such things. I, at least, thank the gods that they haven't inspired the Persians to make war on us. This cogent and well-reasoned argument, of course, did nothing to dissuade Croesus from preemptively attacking the Persians. Herodotus even backs up Sandanus's speech by noting that the Persians, who in the historian's time were known for their lavish way of life, did indeed live without luxuries or comforts before they conquered the Lydians. After ignoring this sage advice, Croesus set out with his army, invading Cappadocia, the region that lay just to the east of the Halys, the river that marked the traditional eastern border of the Lydian kingdom. But why Cappadocia, an area that we've had no cause to mention up until now? Herodotus gives us three reasons for Croesus's strategy. Firstly, he wanted to expand Lydian territory. Secondly, 
he trusted the oracle's words. More fool him. And thirdly, he wanted to get revenge on the Persian king Cyrus for his conquest of the Median king Astyages, whom Cyrus had overthrown. Who, you ask? Sharp-eared listeners might recall that episode 8 began with Croesus being roused from mourning the death of his son by Cyrus's conquest of Media, which is to say, Astyages's kingdom. It was the very event that prompted Croesus to take up his the best defense is a good offense stance and to start probing oracles. I said back then that we'd become familiar with the name Astyages, and here Herodotus offers us the opportunity to do so with the first of today's digressions. Astyages, the king of Media, was Croesus's brother-in-law, and this is how the two kings came to be related. Some years earlier, a group of nomadic Scythians, uh, remember them? See episode 5, broke off from the rest of their tribe and ended up in Median territory. At the time, Media was ruled by King Cyaxares, the father of Astyages. Cyaxares took the Scythians in as guests and treated them with great respect. In a kind of cross-cultural exchange, he even allowed them to educate some Median children in their language and in their skillful methods of archery. Speaking of archery, the Scythians would often go out to hunt and, upon their return, offer the spoils up to the king, their gracious host. All was well and good, until one day when their luck abandoned them and the Scythians returned empty-handed. This prompted Cyaxares to treat his Scythian guests with immense scorn. Herodotus dryly notes that it would appear from this that the king was quick to anger. The Scythians were so offended by this disrespectful treatment from their host that, perhaps overreacting, they sought revenge. They murdered one of the Median boys under their care and cut up his corpse so that it looked like the meat of an animal killed in the hunt. This they brought to Cyaxares, who, his anger suddenly forgotten, accepted it gratefully and had the meat served up as dinner for him and his guests. The Scythians, meanwhile, made their escape. Seeking protection, they fled to the court of the Lydian king, Aliates, the father of Croesus. When he realized what had happened, and presumably after he was violently ill, Cyaxares demanded that Aliates send the Scythians back to him, but the Lydian king refused. And so, over this matter, the Medes and the Lydians went to war, a struggle which lasted over five years and which found the two kingdoms evenly matched. The war only came to an end when the two sides fought a particularly memorable battle. One day, in the sixth year of the struggle, the two armies were fighting a battle. Suddenly, all the sunlight vanished from the sky, the world turned dark, and the day became night. This unnatural event so unsettled both sides that they immediately stopped fighting and were suddenly eager to make peace. A treaty was negotiated with the help of two foreign kings. They hammered out an agreement that, to ensure a lasting peace, the Median and Lydian royal families should be joined in marriage. And so Arianus, the daughter of the Lydian king Aliates, was wed to Astyages, son of the Median king, Cyaxares. 
Since Ariannus was the sister of Croesus, Astyages thereupon became Croesus's brother-in-law. Never one to ignore a vivid detail, Herodotus chimes in with this aside. Apparently, the ritual to swear oaths among the Lydians and Medians was very much like that among the Greeks. But in addition, to seal the deal, the two parties would cut each other's arms and lick each other's blood. Side note, within a side note, within a side note, uh, the unnatural darkness that ended the war was, of course, a solar eclipse. Moreover, it was a solar eclipse that the Greek sage Thales of Miletus had actually predicted. More on this in the second half. And so that, Herodotus concludes, is the personal connection between Astyages and Croesus, and the reason that Croesus chose Cappadocia, part of his brother-in-law's conquered realm, as the start of his campaign against the Persians. To get into Cappadocia, however, Croesus had to get his army across the river Halys, which is today called Kizalirmak in Turkish. It runs in a long curve from the Anatolian plateau into the Black Sea, roughly halfway on the east-west axis of the Anatolian peninsula. And how did Croesus's troops cross this river? Herodotus believes that the bridges that existed in his time were there in Croesus's time too, which would make crossing a fairly simple matter. However, he also reports the other side of the story. The Greeks believed that in Croesus's time there were no bridges, so that the Lydian army simply couldn't cross it. That is, until Thales of Miletus, yes, him again, came up with an ingenious solution. Starting upstream from where the army was waiting, Thales dug a channel that rerouted part of the river's water behind them and then looped it back to the main course of the river. This reduced the volume of water enough that the river became fordable by the Lydian forces. Herodotus, of course, gets the last word in. Quote, some even say that the original course of the river dried up completely. But I do not believe this. For, if that were so, how did the Lydians cross the river when they were returning? Well, bridge or no bridge, with the Halys crossed, Croesus advanced with his army, coming to the city of Pteria. There, he attacked and enslaved the Pterians and razed their city, actions that Herodotus observes Croesus had no reason to take. But we can't dwell long on Croesus's cruel deeds, for it was there, in Pteria, that the Lydian and the Persian armies first met. The Battle of Pteria was pitched and bloody, with many deaths on both sides. Ultimately, however, it was indecisive. When night fell, the two forces withdrew, and neither the Persians nor the Lydians had gotten the upper hand. Croesus realized that his problem was one of numbers. Cyrus, the Persian king, simply had more soldiers than he did. So, thinking strategically, he decided to draw upon his allies to help correct this imbalance. Marching back with his army to Sardis, Croesus sent word to his coalition partners, Egypt, Babylon, and, of course, Sparta. Croesus's plan was to regroup his forces at Sardis, wait out the oncoming winter, and, at the start of spring, gather all the Allies' troops together so that they could set off as one massive force to crush the Persians. With this plan in mind, 
Croesus dismissed all the non-Lydian troops under his command, since he would soon have no need of them. Besides, it was he, Croesus, who was on the offensive. Cyrus wasn't going to march against Sardis, right? Well, as it turns out, wrong. And just how wrong Croesus was came in the form of a divine portent, which is never a good sign. When the gods make it clear that you've messed up, then you know you're really in deep trouble. Snakes began to swarm the outskirts of Sardis, and whenever they appeared, any horse that was nearby would suddenly rush to eat them. Now, Croesus knew a sign from the gods when he saw one, so he sent messengers to the priests of Apollo at Telmessus to find out from the god himself what this bizarre occurrence was supposed to mean. Interpreting the events, the priest said that Croesus should expect a foreign army to attack his country, and that, when it did so, it would conquer his native Lydian forces. But, as events transpired, the messengers never brought this interpretation back to Croesus, since by the time they had received it, Sardis had been taken, and Croesus was already a prisoner. You know, listeners, strange as it may sound, I myself witnessed a divine portent just the other day. I was minding my own business, walking down the street at about dusk, and as I looked up in the sky, five brilliantly shining stars suddenly appeared. This experience was so striking that I simply had to consult Apollo about it. I headed straight to my friendly neighborhood oracle and asked what the celestial apparition was supposed to mean. The oracle replied simply, As in the sky, so online. Five stars above and five stars below. And so, I beg you, heed the words of Apollo, and please rate the Herodotus podcast five stars on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or on whichever platform you listen. You can even head on over to lovethepodcast.com slash Herodotus to easily do so for the service of your choice. I'm sure you'd make Apollo even happier if you became a patron of the podcast by signing up at patreon.com slash Herodotus podcast. I, at least, would be absolutely thrilled. As for following the Herodotus podcast on social media, such as Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, or dropping me a line at HerodotusPodcast at gmail.com, well, I can't speak to the theological implications, but I'm sure that it wouldn't hurt. The events of today's text take us into the final phase of Croesus's story, and also set up some themes that will continue to be prominent in the histories for the rest of the entire work. The first one of these is visible in Sandanus's warning to Croesus about the rich and prosperous Lydians picking a fight with the impoverished but hardy Persians. Consider how Sandanus phrases his advice, which I'll repeat in part. My king, you prepare to make war on a people who wear leather trousers, whose entire wardrobe is, in fact, leather, and who don't eat what they want, 
but only what they have, since they inhabit an inhospitable land. What's more, they drink no wine, but only water, and they have no figs or anything else good to eat. So why is the Persian wardrobe so austere, and why is their diet so meager? In short, why is their life so hard? The answer lies in Sandanus's own words. Because the Persians come from a place devoid of any luxury, and therefore lead a lifestyle that is similarly without any splendor or lavishness. And with this, a major theme of the histories is introduced. The relationship between the climate of a place and the cultural customs of its inhabitants. The barren land of Persia, logically, produces a hard-living people, a stark contrast with the fertile lands of Lydia and Ionia, which were rich in figs, grapes, and other such goodies, and where the easy-living locals didn't have to adopt the all-leather look. As Herodotus takes us farther afield from Asia Minor and Greece, into far-flung regions like Ethiopia or the wide-open Eurasian steppe, we'll see more passages that touch more directly on this point. Another, more problematic aspect of this theme is a related question, the relationship between climate and human biological characteristics. Again, this is something that we'll see more explicitly in the future, but I want to flag it for your attention now. One of the ongoing debates in Herodotian scholarship is the question of whether Herodotus is an environmental determinist. In other words, if he really thinks that the climate of a place must always determine what the people who live there look like. There are many, many passages of ethnography and geography coming up, so it's a question that we will most definitely revisit. There's one more reason that I want to focus on Sandanus's advice. His depiction of the Persian lifestyle as stark and austere would definitely have caused Herodotus's audience to sit up and take notice. In the minds of the Greeks of Herodotus's time, Persia, much like Lydia, was a byword for excessive, scarcely imaginable wealth and luxury. To hear Persia described as a harsh and inhospitable land with no wine would be like someone in the 21st century hearing Jeff Bezos called a poor, independent entrepreneur. Maybe it was true once, but it's definitely not the case now. But looking to the big picture, let's remember this description of Persia and see how long it applies. Now let's turn to the Medes. Compared to the empire that they followed, the Assyrians, or to the empire that followed them, the Persians, the Medes aren't a particularly familiar name to most modern listeners. However, their rise and fall constitute an important part of the first book of the histories, but not yet. Once again, Herodotus plays loop-de-loop with the narrative, first mentioning the Medes back in chapter 46, again, see episode 8, bringing their king Astyages into the text as a reason for Croesus's actions here, in chapter 72, but not actually delving into their history until chapter 95. I'm going to hold off on a longer discussion of the Median Empire until then. However, let's take a brief look at one incident in that section of the text, 
the horrific meal eaten by Astyages and his guests. Now, this disgusting story, a king unknowingly consuming human flesh at his own banquet, may sound familiar to you. If you know your Greek myths, you may recall it from the story of Thyestes and Atreus. These two brothers were bitter rivals for the throne of Mycenae. Their family had been cursed ever since their grandfather Tantalus had offended the gods by, well, killing his own son and serving him to the gods at a banquet. To make a long and gruesome story short, but no less gruesome, Atreus ultimately won the Mycenaean crown. But Thyestes got revenge by seducing Atreus' wife. To get back at Thyestes for this outrage, you can get a sense of their healthy family dynamic, right? Atreus murdered his two nephews, the sons of Thyestes, and served their cooked flesh to their father, only revealing their dismembered hands and feet after Thyestes had partaken of the meal. The story gets even worse at that point, if you can believe it, so let's leave it there. But it's this same curse that dooms the house of Agamemnon et al. in the famous tragedies. Incidentally, this event may also ring a bell if you're a fan of Shakespeare, as the bard dramatized a version of it in his 1593 play, Titus Andronicus. You might wonder why King Aliates would bother protecting, let alone going to war over, a group of nomads who had committed murder and, effectively, cannibalism. When the Scythians fled to Sardis, by throwing themselves on the mercy of the Lydian ruler, they became his suppliants. When he took them in, he agreed to protect them under the rules of hospitality, a vow taken so seriously that, uh, you may recall from episode 7, it was overseen by Zeus himself. To hand one's guests over to someone who would surely execute them would be the gravest violation of those rules. And so, without explicitly stating it, Herodotus imputes a personal motivation for the Lydian-Median War. And, as we'll see, this is Herodotus's approach more generally. In the histories, wars aren't fought for grand geopolitical objectives, but instead because some ruler wants to go to war, whether to obtain something, to avenge a wrong, or simply out of a sense of personal grievance. We can see this kind of motivation, too, in a passage from today's text, which I briefly want to consider in greater detail, quoting rather than paraphrasing. The start of chapter 73 reads, Croesus marched with his army into Cappadocia for these reasons. Because, desiring land, he wanted to add to his own territory, but most of all because he trusted in the oracle, and because he wanted to get revenge on Cyrus, on behalf of Astyages. This is a wonderful bit of psychological detail. Herodotus skillfully emphasizes Croesus's lack of self-awareness by listing the obvious, completely self-serving reason first, but then adding a clarificatory most of all, before repeating the official reasons that drive the narrative forward. It's passages like this that showcase the elegance of Herodotus's prose. No matter how it started, the ending of the Lydian-Median War by means of a solar eclipse makes for a cool story. 
but it also provides a handy way of dating the battle in question. As it happens, a solar eclipse that blocked out 97% of the visible sun in the region of Cappadocia occurred on May 28, 585 BCE. Remarkably, it is quite likely that Thales of Miletus predicted it, given what's known about his life, as well as the fact that other ancient authors give him the credit for doing so. Thales was a philosopher and a scientist from Miletus in Ionia, and was considered to be one of the seven great sages of the Greek world, along with some other names that we've heard in this podcast, most significantly Solon. The importance of Thales' thought lies in how he disregarded myth as an explanation for phenomena in the natural world, making him one of the first known rationalist thinkers. Instead of relying on stories about the gods, Thales used observation and hypothesis, which helps account for how he would have been able to predict an eclipse. Given knowledge of when and where other eclipses had occurred, he would have been able to calculate when another such event would take place, within certain parameters. In summarizing Herodotus' description of the event, I left out one significant detail. Thales did not predict the exact date and time of the eclipse, but rather only the year in which it would occur. Of course, being able to only determine the year is still a remarkable achievement. Nor should we discount how terrifying a total solar eclipse would have been to people in the 6th century. The historian of philosophy Patricia O'Grady, who, in discussing this eclipse, notes her own experience of a total solar eclipse. There was a strong, uncanny sensation of impending disaster, and of being within the control of some awful power. Birds ceased their chirping, and all was hushed except for the distant barking of some dogs. Even though one may understand the cause of an eclipse, during the observance of such a phenomenon, one has the feeling of being witness to an unnatural occurrence. Irrational though it may be, there is a distinct feeling of apprehension through being enveloped in the atmosphere of the seemingly supernatural, over which one has no control. Thales also features in the story of Croesus crossing the river Halys. It's a nifty trick, although one that's impossible to historically verify. Nevertheless, the rechanneling and the crossing tie into another major Herodotian theme. Remember back in episode 2, when we looked at the women who ping-ponged between east and west, crossing that very important boundary? Well, Croesus's crossing of the river Halys is another crossing of a boundary line between his own land and the land that he means to conquer. We should see it not just as a simple crossing, but rather as a kind of violation. The Lydian Empire had traditionally set its boundary at the Halys. Therefore, for Croesus to cross it was to unnaturally grasp at more territory, pushing beyond a natural limit. Recall the passage that I quoted earlier, the start of chapter 72. First and foremost in the Lydian king's mind was the acquisition of territory. For all his justifications, such as taking vengeance for his conquered Median brother-in-law, what does Croesus do as soon as he crosses the river Halys? He immediately enslaves the people living there, 
It's the desire for more that drove him to this unnecessary violence. And the result of this violation of natural limit, this giving in to the desire for more, in the end, destruction. Time and again in the histories, a successful ruler tries to grab more and more, and in doing so, brings about disaster. This is a major philosophical principle that undergirds the entire text. Croesus's crossing of the Halys is the first meaningful river crossing in the histories, but it's by no means the last. Next time on the podcast, the snakes, uh, chickens, come home to roost for Croesus, as Cyrus defeats the Lydians in battle with his secret weapon, camels. See you next time on the Herodotus Podcast. Mm-hmm.